0: You guys remember Fat Albert? Like I didn't even do that right. Hey, hey, hey. Like I'm surprised y'all are older to remember that. I don't know why that came out. It just came out. So happy Sunday to you. Hey, I've not met you yet. My name is Jeff. I'm a lead pastor here. We're glad that you've chosen and that you've uh, like labored to get here and spend some time with us as we worship as a church together. If you're joining us by live stream, we say good morning. Glad to have you with us as well. You could be doing anything. You probably are doing anything. But we welcome you into our space uh, over the airways, and glad that you're worshiping with us. We have been in a sermon series in the New Testament book of 1 Peter, and so we're continuing in that. So turn in your Bibles to chapter 4. We're going to look at uh, 6 verses today, uh, verses 1 through 6, as we talk uh, uh, once more about suffering. And while you're doing that, let me make an announcement. So, Uh, You probably went over the hill and through the woods to get to the front door this morning to our building. Uh, We put an announcement on social media and also our weekly update. Uh, There's some, uh, you know, just pavement kind of stuff going on in in our parking lot. Uh, This week is kind of easy. Next week will be be a little bit more difficult because the, uh, the entrance, so for those of you that come sort of from the Kingstown or like the Franconia area coming through Pickett, that whole driveway in through the front is going to be, um, asked, well, they're, they're uh, actually sealing it. Okay, so that's going to happen next Sunday morning. And so the best bet to get into the front door is either going to be come through Pickett, go all the way around the back side of the building, or best case, go to Edsel Road and come in through the front, and you'll have to park on the on this side, which is the Social Security Administration side. So that's for you who are coming in person and parking. Uh, next week's going to be a little bit more difficult to get in here. And, and do us a favor. This asphalt, is, uh, the, the, the ceiling stuff is kind of wet, so don't, st- don't step in it. Don't let your kids step in it, because it's going to be on your shoe, and then it will get in the building. All right, I'm being a good parent, right? All right, First Peter 4, verse 1 through 6. Let's read these verses out loud together. It's what the apostle says. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though they judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, gathered here today as your church, as you encourage us to do, as you exhort us to do. And, and, and Lord, I echo what, uh, what Joseph said in, in, our, in our prayer as we finish singing, is that, is that we need you. Lord, we're here in a physical acknowledgement that we need you, we need your spirit, we need the body of Christ to gathered together. It's not this, uh, this uh, get to, really it's a have to. Our, our souls need this. And Lord, we join the psalmist uh, as he sings to you a new song and and echoes to his own soul of of how good God is. There's no one like you. So Lord, as we express our need to you, just by our physical presence, we say, Lord, we we do need you. We need you like like this morning needs the sun. We need you like a desert needs water. We need you like the, the little babies here in our room even need their mothers. Lord, we need you. So would you come by your Holy Spirit and remind us of your goodness and of your grace and of your kindness to us. God, would you open your word to our souls and nourish us as only you can. God, would you draw us to Jesus, remind us that this Bible is pointing us to him as the the author and the finisher of our faith, and God, would you make us more like him. That's our prayer today. We pray this in his name. Amen and amen. So slowly working through uh, the New Testament book of First Peter and for the past several weeks we've been wrestling through Peter's emphasis on suffering and he doesn't let us off the hook even today, that, that thread continues. In fact, it runs all the way through the book. And if you recall how Peter starts this book, he calls Christians elect exiles. And those aren't words that we would uh, necessarily choose for ourselves. This is suffering language. Peter says that if you are a Christian, then uh, by by virtue of what you believe, you're going to become an outsider, a marginal people, a minority folk. And a lot of times in the day and, and time where we live, We wouldn't use those words necessarily to describe ourselves, but these are the words that Peter says reflect who you become when you become a Christian. And the expectation is that following Jesus is is going to do that for you, do that to you. That's Peter's uh, dominant message here, And, and he says the hard reality of being Christians in a hostile environment is really at the forefront of all that he's writing in his book and and he continues that today in these first few verses of chapter four peter wants us to understand and to really embrace the character the cost and the calling of what it means to follow jesus and that means really the theme that we uh, are embarking on this morning is it's a call to christlikeness of, of being like christ before we get to our text i want to tell you about a story It's a story of a young girl uh, by the name of Fatima. Fatima grew up, lived, and still does in in Iran. Uh, Her earliest memories were of being sexually abused by members of her own family. At the age of 11, she was given into marriage to uh, a drug lord in her region, and he abused her. And uh, the unthinkable happens. He actually divorced her at the ripe old age of 17. She uh, reluctantly returned to her home where she continued to be sexually abused by her family. And then she basically had no other resort but to, uh, to, to, to leave her home and yeah, end up living on the streets. It's on the streets there in Iran that, uh, uh, that the, a miracle happened. She heard the gospel. She came to faith in Jesus and she started living a different kind of life. Fast forward a little bit, she marries, she meets and marries a Christian man, and together they begin to, to dream about um, going into, into full-time ministry. They got some training on evangelism, and they eventually started to plan to plant a church, and then Fatima had this idea of, well, what would it be like if I kind of did the unthinkable, but that if we went back and talk to my family, this family that had abused me for years and years uh, about Jesus. And so her husband agreed, and they did that. They went back to Fatima's family, this family that had uh, treated her really like a non-person. And talking to them about uh, their lives in Jesus, these people who had abused her, uh, another miracle happened. They came to faith. And so happens is the church that Fatima and her husband planted was right there amongst her family. Uh, right there amongst those people who had formerly abused her. So, so the backdrop, of course, is, is Iran, and Iran been, and Iran is always in the news, right? I mean, we're, we're always talking about them. We're trying to uh, prevent them from becoming a nuclear power. We're talking about the sanctions that our country is going to have against them for uh, violating uh, NATO treaties and all that and the like. And, of course, two months ago, they had this huge explosion that, that injured and killed hundreds, thousands of people. What's particularly striking about Fatima's story in this backdrop of, of Iran is that her story is, is common, right? There's, there's hundreds, perhaps even thousands of young girls who've been abused and subjected to a less than decent life like Fatima in Iran. But here's the other story about the Iran that we, like as Americans, we don't pay much attention to. If you want to think about where the church and the world is growing the fastest, guess where it is? It's in Iran. I only know that because we have an Acts 29 church planner there that talks about just the spread of the gospel and how the Spirit of God is igniting people of faith to, to, to suffer in telling their stories so that they might reach people like those kind of people who live in Iran, like Fatima and her husband are doing. And so Iran is the, it's, it's the fastest-growing church in our world right now. And guess where the second most fastest-growing church of God is in the world? Close, Afghanistan. And here's why the church in Afghanistan is growing. It's because it neighbors Iran. And so you've got this great uh, uh, just revival. Not even a revival. It's a, it's a call to come to God, right, in Iran. And because they're next door, people in Iran are, and the languages are similar, they're just crossing the border and they're witnessing to their Afghanistan neighbors. It's this beautiful thing that's happening. In 1979, there were less than 500 professing Christians in Iran. Today, we can't even count the number because of what God is doing there. And if you were to ask, how is the Iranian church growing? How is the church in these uh impoverished, third world, suffering, like I don't want to be there kind of places, growing, it's because of people like Fatima and her husband. It's because of people like, like, like them. That's, that's how the church has grown. Bold, godly, humble, courageous people, servants of God who are willing to suffer for what they believe. And, and I think that's precisely what Peter is calling us to in this text. And of several things that he tells us, the first thing that Peter exhorts us to have character like Jesus. Look at verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. When Peter says the same way of thinking, he means to have the same resolve that we see in Jesus Jesus who suffered, uh, who, who faced suffering as he obeyed the call of God. Peter is exhorting us that we are to mirror the same things that we see in Jesus. And likewise, everything we see in Jesus, we're going to be called to suffer like that. It's, it's not a if, it's a when. And I want to point out a couple things in things in verse one. The first is, this is a forewarning. Right. Peter is, is, is he's like what Jesus says, gird up your loins, people like something's got about to happen. Right. Like brace yourself. He, he's writing in anticipation of the suffering that he says is a normal part of your life as a Christian. Again, it's not a if it's a it's a win. He's forewarning, but he's also forearming. He uses that word arm yourself forearming us to get ready because suffering is coming. That's the first thing. The second thing is the preparation Peter is calling us to takes place in the mind in the way that we think. He says, arm yourself with this way of thinking, the same way of thinking. It's not, it's not about behavior. So a lot of times when, we, when we're preparing for something that's not going to be pleasant, we might brace ourselves. We might put on our football pads. I'm going to put like, like Teflon myself, like r- brace for impact. That's, that's not what he's saying, doing. He's saying we need to have a different outlook, a perspective, an attitude, and a conviction. Is, and, it's the, and it's the attributes of Jesus that we need to put onto ourselves and that we need to think about and that we need to embrace. And to be honest, that's, that's really why many of us have a difficulty with suffering. We struggle with this idea of suffering because in our 21st century American version uh, of life, it, it gives us an entitlement to a, a comfortable life. Suffering is not a word that we want to come off of our lips very often. At least that's, that's me. We think that our uh, comfortability is one of our inalienable rights, right? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, and I want to be comfortable. And here's the thing for us reform folk. We might not buy into the name it, claim it, gospel stuff that, you know, I, I pay a little money. I do a few things right, and God's going to bless me. He's going to, you know, do everything right for me. We don't don't buy into that, that God owes me something for my general service to him. But most of us take up a subtle view that if we just read our Bibles and pray, if we lead a moral life, that if we we discipline our kids, that if we have a good work ethic, if if we're just decent, hardworking church folk, that, that God essentially owes us a generally happy life. And I'm not saying that if you do those kinds of things, uh, that in the, 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 the beauty and kindness and grace of God, you won't live a happy life. But here's the thing. When, when we think like that, when we believe like that, probably subconsciously, I don't think most of us will say those things out loud. When we suffer and Peter says you actually are going to suffer, it's eventually going to happen. A lot of times we have no way to accommodate suffering into our vernacular when it actually happens, right? We've we've braced ourselves for something that we actually don't want to happen, and when it happens, we don't know what to do with it. Our faith takes a serious hit. I prayed, I gave, I was kind, I believe in Jesus. I don't understand why this is happening to me. Lord, what's going on? I thought God was on my side. And Peter says, he says, arm yourself with this way of thinking, the same attitude, the same outlook that you see in Jesus, our Savior, who understood the path of obedience is a path of suffering. And so, what, Peter, what does Peter say? He says, Get ready. And here's the second thing that he would exhort us to it's the cost of following Jesus. And this is the cost of, of, of Christlikeness, of growing in Christlikeness. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live, verse 2, for the rest of our time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 3, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawlessness. All right, we got kids in the room, so I'm going to be PG, okay? But we're going to talk about some stuff. There's a lot here, so I'm going to take a little bit of time to unpack what's, what's going on here. Firstly, Peter says, arm ourselves with a Christ-like mindset that faces suffering with courage and humility and then he gives us the reason uh, the reason why and it starts with the word for he says have this Christ-like Christ-like mindset for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's a tricky verse. Almost like last week again it's like Peter what are you talking about? Okay? Uh, commentaries have less of a, 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 a difficulty with this than what we looked at last week, but many really have un- misunderstood what these words actually mean—that we have ceased from sin. Many propose the possibility that a Christian might be able to attain to something like the um, the, the sinless perfection. And, and we have that in our day. The, the, the Catholic faith has a semblance of, of this idea that you can, a, uh, you can attain a, a perfection in Christian in, in life. The, the Quakers believe this, uh, notably, uh, the Methodists believe this. This is a, a common theology of John Wesley. It reminds me of a story of a, a man speaking to a famous preacher, and uh, this man had the, the nerve to argue this point, that he had somehow uh, already attained sinless perfection, and so this famous preacher, kind of intrigued, kind of wanting to draw him out, right? Like, I'm going to sucker this guy in. Uh, he, he decides to continue the conversation, invites him over for dinner. They're having a fine dinner and a great conversation, and the man kept bringing this thing up, like, I, like, I, I don't sin. I don't, I don't sin. I, I have attained that that perfect place where uh, things in the world don't bother me, and I'm able to live my life kind of like Jesus was, right? And so uh, the, the famous preacher kind of just stood back and, and took it all in, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he took a glass that was on the table filled with water, and he tosses it in the front of this man, like on his face. like So all of a sudden, this man is, is doused with water, and you can imagine what happens next, right? He, he stood up, and in an outrage, he naturally spewed out some ugly words to, uh, to this famous preacher. And the famous preacher uh, uh, rightly uh, basically says, ah, I, I see what happened. The old man within you is not dead. He simply fainted for a few minutes and needed to be revived by a cup of cold water. So you're welcome. Here's what our Bible says about sin. First John eight if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Your Bible corroborates what's true about you, and if you haven't figured this out yet, I mean, beware. Like, something, something's going on in you. People who say that they have achieved some sort of sinless perfection are firstly self-deceived, and they're probably trying to deceive you as well. So my only caution would be not, it's not to befriend them, you know, it, it's to just be careful, because they're deceived. So all this to say, Peter's not suggesting that it's possible for us to stop sinning. And and you've recognized this about your life, right? Hopefully you have. But he is trying to connect. He's trying to highlight, firstly, the options before us as Christians. He's saying there's a connection between people following Jesus and the suffering that that will bring and our progress in in the power of overcoming sin. He's saying there's a connection between suffering and sanctification and turning away from the world and its standards to instead living a life on, on God's terms. And, and faced with persecution because uh, the, the type of suffering that the, that the, the, the readers of Peter's uh, letter are enduring is their suffering. They're, they're experiencing persecution and opposition because of their faith, because of what they believe, right? These are people who are opposed to and reject the gospel. And so Christians faced with that kind of persecution have a choice to make. We have, we have to decide, like, is it worth it? Is, is Christ-likeness and me pursuing that, is it worth it? Is, is me following Jesus worth it? Is Jesus himself worth it? Because if I choose Jesus, I am going to suffer, and it might even hurt a little bit. And that's what verse 1 is telling us. Whoever suffers for Christ has ceased from sin. Y'all have heard a little bit of my testimony. I, I grew up going to church. Uh, I really became a Christian when I got to West Point, and, um, and just, you know, reading the Bible, going to a Bible study, Gospel of John, uh, I recognized that going to my grandma's church, getting baptized, singing in the choir didn't save me. Like I, need, I was a sinner and I needed a savior. And I remember the exact moment, I can't tell you today, um, but I remember a moment where it just like, it was like that. Like I, I was intimately aware of all the ways and how much I was offending the Lord with my sin. And in that moment, like twenty-year-old Jeff decided, "All right, en- enough's enough. Like I'm going to follow Jesus, and as hard as it is, I'm going to do my best with God's help, aided by the Spirit, to stop sinning." I actually stopped dating my girlfriend. Like I, I changed my friends. I mean, all those kinds of things. And that's what that's what that's what he's getting us to. That's what he's encouraging us to. It's, it's getting to the point where I'd rather have Jesus with trials and suffering than sin with friendship with the world. That, that's what he's encouraging us to. I'd rather have Jesus with the wounds that, that, that following Jesus uh, avails me than have sin with earthly praises. You've resolved that verse 2 puts it, to live the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so it's easy to roll those words off of your lips, right? I, I can read this, but can we be honest for just a second? To 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 uh, to even think about this is not a popular path to live life. But more importantly, this is something that's not easy to do. This, this is hard stuff, right? This this really is the essence uh, of suffering. And some of you know what it feels like to to have the to make the painful choice between following Jesus or or staying with some of your most cherished friendships. I mean, we love our friends, even our non-Christian friends. In fact, they sometimes are our, our, our closest friends. And, and the thought of losing our friends kind of sucks. Some of you have faced that dilemma in the workplace. Some of you have faced it in your marriage. Some of you have faced it in the school. And the question that we have to ponder is, like, will I join in, blend in, fit in? Will I be accepted like everybody else, or will I actually take a stand for for Jesus? Will I gently, lovingly, faithfully stand my ground, follow Jesus nevertheless, and be possibly excluded from and scorned and dismissed? And he says in verse 4, malign for what I am saying, I believe, about my Savior. And so Peter puts it, whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And I think those are the choices. Those are the difficult choices. And that's why it's called suffering. Do I avoid suffering and embrace everything that's going on out there in the world is the challenge? Or will I endure suffering and have the Lord through that draw me closer to to him in Christlikeness? Here's a perspective I read this week in one of the commentaries that I was looking at that might be helpful for us. One one commentator says, rather, a readiness to endure hardship and suffering is not simply a consequence of Christlikeness, but it's used by God as an instrument in promoting my Christlikeness. So, in other words, me suffering doesn't always mean that I'm growing in Christlikeness. Like I, I'm suffering. I woke up and it's raining today. Like I woke up and man, it's hot outside. That, that's suffering, perhaps. But every suffering doesn't end in Christlikeness. But here's what the our, our hope is: is that God uses our suffering when it's Jesus-oriented to promote Christ-likeness in me. The commentator goes on to say, it helps me by willing to go through suffering if I know God intends my suffering to produce in me the likeness of Jesus. And that's what the Bible says suffering does for us. It produces in us, oftentimes, the likeness of Jesus. Likewise, C.S. Lewis writes, this is in his book, A Grief Observed. He says, suppose that what you were up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder, more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting if he yielded to entreaties, to your entreaties, if he stopped before the operation was complete, all the pain up to that point would be would have been useless. He goes on to say, what do people mean when they say I am not afraid of God because I know he is good. Have they never uh, have they never been to a dentist? So that that this quote like really like gets it just like it's in me because I went to the dentist like four months ago. In fact, um, I told a story. In March, right when everything shut down because of coronavirus, I bit into an apple and I broke my, to- my front tooth off, right? No pain because I had a root canal there, but uh, I basically went for five months because everything is shut down um, with a-, a fake tooth screwed in, couldn't, eat, couldn't bite on anything hard, than a banana, right? Um, and so I had surgery in late July, and the surgery was dental implant surgery, and if you if not if you don't know anybody or haven't gone through dental implant surgery, like it is rough, right? I'm a, I'm a decent, kind of a calm dental patient. I've gone through a lot of dental stuff, and I don't get you know riled up. Like I can sit in a chair and just you know hold on and do my thing, let the dentist do his thing. Um, but in this case, I was nervous as all get out. Like I was like shaking thinking about them drilling, like pulling my tooth out by the root and then drilling into my bone structure to put a little, I'm being too graphic, aren't I? I'm sorry. All right, that's what happens when you get an implant surgery, thank God for laughing gas. So check it out, if you've never experienced laughing gas, go get yourself, right? Because when the, uh, like when the, when the attendant was encouraging me to get laughing gas, she was, I was like, what does it do to me? She's like, well, It's going to make you happy to be here. And I said, I need me some of that, (laughs) right? So I'm in the chair. They numbed me. But more importantly, I have this laughing gas thing going on. And laughing gas actually does make you laugh. And so, but what I remember in my kind of out of out of sensical state was like it was kind of violent. My head is shaking like this, and he said, "Open your mouth," and like like drills and plugging and pulling. And at one point, I could tell I was bleeding. And I mean, it was trauma happening in my mouth. Thank God for laughing gas. And, And and of course, the thought is that dentist was doing what he had to do to make sure that, or at some point, I'm gonna be able to bite in, some, bite down on something harder than an apple, a uh, 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 banana. But more importantly, and for your sake, he was trying to cosmetically make it so that in December, December 8th to be exact, that I get this nice front of a grill that's going to be look beautiful, and you guys can le- look at me and actually smile back at me, right? Uh, and so the, the beauty of this is that the, the surgeon is doing what he has to do to make it so that uh, I get the things that I really need. and for, he's, he's a good surgeon, right? And so what is God doing in our suffering? I, I think he's saying to us, he's, he's teaching us to say, know to sin and self and to cling to Jesus. I, I think he wants you to see, for me to see, that Jesus is enough, particularly in our trials, right? When things get hard, when life gets tough, that Jesus is sufficient, that he's adequate for you, that he's more than enough, then as you turn from sin to your Savior, you're going to grow in Christ-likeness, even though you're experiencing a little suffering. You're suffering because God is good, not despite it. And his purpose is to make you like his son, Jesus. God is the surgeon. He's a good surgeon. And what he's doing in surgery is he's, he's doing surgery on your conscience and in your heart and in your character to wing you from all the ways that are not like him in the world so that you are more like your Savior, Jesus. And so Peter tells us in our passage, it's time to get real about leaving for Jesus. Look at verse three. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Peter is talking to us in this ongoing conversation about the effect of what happens when I don't put off my sin. Like, like what actually happens? Happens. He's saying, when, you, when are you going to wake up to the reality that you've sinned enough? Like, like what you see the Gentiles doing, all those people out, Gentiles is, is those people who have not uh, begin, begun to follow Jesus. It's Peter's vernacular for, for Gentiles. He said, when are you not going to realize that, uh, that you've sinned enough? you sinned enough when you were outside of the faith. St- stop it. Enough is enough. And we all know how sin works, right? So we come to faith, and uh, by the Spirit, we are, are, are living a life that's oriented towards God, but there's always this enticement, this, ent- this temptation uh, to do what we formerly did, or to do things that the Bible would, wouldn't condone, to, to be wayward, to do what the Bible calls sin. And then sometimes we remember our past, right? And so we begin to bargain. We begin to bargain with ourselves, like, well, maybe just this one time, right? Do what I used to do, and we dip our toe in ever so gently. And then, as the Bible says, sin feels good for the moment, right? And so more than a toe, we go all the way down, and of course, we're bargaining with ourselves, and we say, oh, well, just this one moment. I I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to do it just this one time. I'll be better later. I'll do gooder tomorrow, right? Like, Like, it's just this one time, and of course, that one time leads to more. And that's what he gets at when he mentions sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. There's this cascading effect, de- de-escalating effect to the sin in our lives. And the bottom line is that these are all idolatries. They're, they're, they're ways that we give ourselves to that, that end up being worship. And, and, and Peter is making this particular to the people that are, in, that, that, that are his readers but I think, you know, 2,000 years later, these, these describe who we are as well. When the Bible says sensual and Peter's speaking there, he's talking about a way of life that I go with however I feel. If it feels good, do it. If it looks good, embrace it. If it smells good, taste it, right? So, I, like, I'm one of the oldest people in the room right now, I think, right? So, I've, li- I've done a little bit of everything. I'm not proud of that, but I have, okay? And so, I've learned that just because it smells good, looks good, tastes good, I think it's good, doesn't mean it's good. If you haven't learned that yet, like, listen to me. That's what Peter's saying. Sensuality has a a de-escalating scale, and it's going to get worse, right? It's going to get worse. Here's here's our difficulty. We live in this culture where the driving force is do what you feel. Like, do what you want to do. And if we all embrace that, I mean, we end up in the chaos of, of not only our, our our moral lives, we end up in the chaos of, of society. And, and here's how sin works. It's the de- deceptive nature of sin. It tastes good for the moment when it, it goes down, and it rots your gut, and it destroys you from the inside out. And sensuality leads to passion. This word passion is the, the Greek word epitomeo, epitomea, rather, um, and it means uh, not just passion, but evil cravings. Like, I always use this definition, like, because I used to work at McDonald's for three years in high school. I, I love McDonald's, don't say anything bad to me about McDonald's, like all you make, all you healthy McDonald's. I'm, I'm a healthy eater, except for when I go to McDonald's. And so when you go to McDonald's, say you're like, you're just trying to quench your hunger, just a little bit, and you want just a small, small order of fries. But come on, you get in there, and you see that menu, and then it's like, oh, 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 my gosh, I'm, I'm a little hungry. I'm I'm more hungry than I think. And you decide to supersize it. Instead, so instead of just getting a bag of fries, what do you get? You get like a double quarter pounder with cheese, the largest fry I got, and one of those giant slurpy type drinks, like full-blown. Full Not a Diet Coke, like, like full Coke, right? That's, that's what epithemia is. It's, it's overindulgence. It's it's over desire. And, uh, and, of course, sensuality leads to passions. That leads to uh, drunkenness. I don't have to tell you what drunkenness is. If you don't know what drunkenness is, praise God. Don't get into it, particularly if you're a college age kid. Because here's the, here's the, you see, drunkenness isn't in the middle. It's a hinge, right? Drunkenness leads to all the other things on this list, orgies and drinking parties and, and, and lawless idolatry. Lawless idolatry is not just like you worshiping things that you shouldn't. It's like idolatry that the government doesn't even sanction. Let me give you an example. Like drunken driving. You ever notice that your government doesn't care if you get drunk or not? How do I know that? When everything closed down in March because of the coronavirus, ABC stores, wide open money, right? There's a a heavy tax on on alcoholic sales for for the state. They ain't going to close the ABC store. you crazy? They don't care if we get drunk. But they, the government does care if you get drunk and then get in your car and drive because it's a threat to society. That's lawless idolatry. And so here's Peter's point. Sensuality leads to passion, which leads to overdesire, which leads me to do whatever it takes to get what I want. And it leads to all kinds of brokenness. And Peter is saying to us, come on, Christians, haven't you sinned enough? This is behavior that belongs not in your present, but in your past. Keep it there. Don't give in to your, Don't give yourself to it anymore. And so the reality is, and Peter alludes to this next, when we make the hard choice to pursue Christ-likeness, it's actually going to be offensive, offensive to some people. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. That phrase... Flood of debauchery connects what we talked about last week when we talked about uh, the story uh, of of Noah. The the picture we get is this wickedness, the wickedness of man when given to themselves and they turn away from God. And what does God do? God sends the deluge. He sends the flood to not only wipe out all of the earth and just give it a restart. He wipes out all of humanity because of our brokenness and our sin. And he chooses to start over with one singular family. So when we hear the word flood, we should firstly think, man, it's gotten so bad that God has to pour his wrath out on all of our sin. But thankfully, there's another picture. It's a beautiful picture when it comes to flood. And it's a, and it's a picture of, of rescue, of God coming alongside us in the, in the ark of his love in Jesus to save us and to help us begin a new life. In comes this idea of flood of debauchery. All right, that's not a good term, right? Flood of debauchery lost myself, it's a picture of extreme overwhelming desire that, that doesn't get met, which leads, which, uh, and what it leads to is unbelievable destruction. And, and the world is surprised, and this is Peter's point, the world is surprised when you don't want to go that way with them, when you don't want to join them in, in this de-escalating uh, exposure to the passions of your sinful heart from sensuality to passions to drunkenness to orgies to, to all that other stuff. And it leads to this flood of, of debauchery. The world's surprised that you don't join them in it because they don't see it that way. And if you're here today, if you're here on a live stream and you're a person that says, you know what, I'm not really following God. I don't want to follow God. And I don't see, I don't, I have, I'm living a good life. I don't see anything wrong in my life. Then I would tell you uh, whether you see it or not, you're being deceived, you're blinded by your own sin, and honestly, you're not living the life that God has designed you to live. And so our prayer would be that God would open your eyes, that he would save your heart, you would see your sin, and that you would come to Jesus, your Savior. But, but here's, uh, here's, here's the bigger point. Christians who are consistent in their faith are the enigmas. I think Paul, uh, Peter is, 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 is assuming this. Christians are the real Stranger Things. You guys seen the Netflix Stranger Things, right? We're, we're the good version of that. We, we are the, the enigma. We're the anomaly. And, and, and Peter's saying, you're going to surprise people. In, in our day, and also in Peter's, you're actually going to offend people if you do if you do something other than what the world does. People are going to feel judged by you, not because you say anything or particularly do anything that that judges them in in, in the particulars, but simply because you're not embracing the same things that they embrace. And instead, you're embracing what God would say is right for you. And the result oftentimes is, is hope, open hostility. And the Christians to whom Peter were writing were already beginning to endure that. They were already beginning to receive opposition and they were suffering. And So that's why he's addressing it. So imagine them reading Peter's letter, just like we're reading it today and kind of going through it, and they're thinking, well, gosh, we're already suffering, and I thought Peter would have given us an encouraging word to help us get through the things that we're going through, except he's telling us, hey, I want you to suffer even more. And they're saying, like, like, I want to be encouraged. Where's the encouragement? And I think Peter's reply would be, hey, I'm not giving you a pep talk. I'm not trying to give you a pep talk. I want to make sure that you're living real life in a real world, and that you're carrying the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. He wants us to understand what he would have known about from the Apostle James. Don't you know, James 4.4, 4, friendship with the world is enemy with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so it's clear from Peter's words that there's a price to pay for following Jesus. But there also is a price to pay for rejecting Jesus. And that's what we we see in verse 5. So in verse 4, he says, They will malign you because of your faith, verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, they being those who who are of the world who don't follow Jesus. I I think this is a striking phrase that Peter uses. That that this idea of, of Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead. So this, this, we're 2,000 years since this text was written. And, and don't you ask that sometimes? And so as, as Christians, we read the Bible and we're told Jesus is coming back. If you're reading uh, the community Bible reading with us, we just read Mac, uh, Mark 13 a couple days ago, and it talked about the end times and the, the day of judgment where, where Jesus is coming back. Only God, God the Father knows the day and the hour when, when that's going to happen. But here it says, Jesus is already ready to judge the living and the dead. And so if Jesus is ready, why hasn't he come back yet? Is he like, like looking in his wardrobe, trying to find the right outfit and can't decide on what he wants to wear? I mean, what, what it actually is, is happening? Peter says Jesus is ready. But I think that the, the, the thing here to focus on, the reason Judgment Day hasn't happened quite yet has nothing to do do with Jesus and his readiness. Jesus is is more than ready to do the thing that God has called him to do. And so why the delay? I think that's the, uh, he gets that in that verse 6, and that's my last point here. The the, the calling to Christ-likeness, the calling to be like Jesus. So the calling laid upon every one of us as we seek to follow Jesus is to make him known. That's, That's why you're on the earth. To, to, to live your life in the purposes of God and to make Him known is to proclaim the good news. We see that in verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And so Peter is telling us, Jesus, Jesus is ready. He could come at any moment, any second. And so you have to be ready because. He's ready, and because Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead, the gospel needs to be preached with urgency to to everyone, just like it was preached to those people in Peter's day who lived and who died. So this is first generation Christians; they're only 20, 25, 30 years beyond Jesus living on the earth, and that like they're seeing their kindred like die off, and at this point in their lives, they would have thought, well gosh, it's been a long time. It's been 20, 30 years. Why in the world has Judgment Day not happened yet? Why do we not see Jesus cracking the sky and coming back to to, to usher in the the, the, the end of day? Why is that day not coming? I thought he was coming back. And what Peter is taking the moment to explain here is that yes, Jesus has not yet come back to, to judge the world, even though he's ready and it's because Jesus wants the gospel to sound from his suffering church with force and clarity and boldness. People like me and you. So that those who persecute and oppose and malign have every opportunity instead to repent and themselves come to Jesus. Because they've heard the gospel through, through our lips. The same people they're persecuting. And so with that, if I could review a little bit of what Peter says here. The, 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 the primary principle Peter's trying to drive home in our hearts and in our heads is that, is that suffering for Jesus is real. like It's, it's a real thing. that, that we, we, if, you, if you follow Jesus rightly, you can't get around it. And so, and so get ready. Arm, your, arm yourselves with the way that you think and your perspective about who God is and what he's calling you to. But choosing Jesus first, even if it means suffering follows, also means that he is going to grow you to be more like him. I mean, that's, it's commensurate with that. He's going to make you more Christ-like. It means choosing to cease from sin as the Holy Spirit empowers you. And it's that kind of Christ-likeness that miraculously opens the doors for the gospel in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Iran, like of all places. Here's the last thing I would tell you, and I'm going to close with this. The... the, the this isn't the predominant message of this text, but it's one that sticks with me, and and, and I think Peter was is, is emphasis, emphasizing this to us, is that time is short. You know, this world that we live in, and, and like let's, let's be honest, we, we love our world, this is the only world we got, this is where we live and, and thrive, and, and this is the world that God has given us, but, but the Bible tells us that even though it's 2,000 years from when these words were echoed, it's still short. The time is short. The Jesus that we know and love is one day going to come back. He's coming to judge the the living and the dead. And so he's encouraging us, pour yourself out for your King Jesus. Pour yourself out for its glory. Go and preach the gospel across the street and around the world. Go and preach to your neighbors and to the nations. Why? Because your, your suffering Savior calls you to do that. He calls you to walk in his steps. The day is at hand, the Bible tells us. Go with the good news we're encouraged to, to the ends of the earth while there's still time and rescue those who are perishing. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. Thank you for this challenge from Peter, as he reminds us that, uh, Lord, you called us to, to not succumb to the pressures of the world, but Lord, to to come to the pressures of our of our Savior, who calls us to be like Him, God brings us. He offers us this opportunity to to walk in the steps of Jesus. Not only walk in Him in terms of our behavior, but to think like Him, to to arm ourselves with His same mindset and that endured suffering for the purposes that you had for Him. And Lord, those are easy words to say. They're harder words to live out. And so we pray for ourselves, God, that you would help us to gird up our, our own loins, that God, you would help us to, uh, to take on the difficult mindset that we would be people who would follow you and that come, you know, whatever would come. Lord, we would uh, be beacons for, for you, even if it means suffering for you. Lord, this text also reminds us that you're coming soon. So I pray that we'd be ever present, ever mindful uh, of our task, Lord God to, to be people like Fatima, who uh, who despite the, the difficulties that life may hold for professing uh, faith in you, we'd be willing to, to take a step to let people know what we believe, that we would live rightly for you. We would do that unashamedly. And God through our efforts by the Spirit got you to empower us to not only be like you but to do like you we go to the nations and our neighbors and proclaim how good you are. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, folks, let's respond today to our word. We're going to sing a song.